If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... You press, in the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room, where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. Let's, well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Trexperts Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real Trexpert needs. Welcome back to the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. I'm a doctor, Mr. Neelix, not a decorator. I'm a doctor, not a database. I'm a doctor, not a battery. I'm a doctor, not a zookeeper. My name is Peter Holmstrom. I'm Mark A. Altman's assistant, as well as being a screenwriter and having worked on his sci-fi TV series, Pandora. Mark asked me to come in and host today's episode about a subject that he knows is near and dear to my heart, Star Trek Voyager. I'm thrilled to have with me here today as a co-host, co-guest, co-general awesome person, an acclaimed screenwriter, novelist, comic book writer. She was on the writing staff for Voyager for two seasons. The great Lisa Klink. How you doing today, Lisa? Pretty well. How about yourself? Doing okay. Doing okay. It's a little cold up here in Oregon, but uh, oh, yeah? we got to enjoy winter while we can, I guess. I hear it's like 85 <laughs> degrees for you right now in LA. It's about 85 degrees down here. Yeah. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Just nonstop summer for you. It's great. Um, anyway, we are here today to speak to our guest. Uh, he has a brand new book called Star Trek Voyager, A Celebration, which came out this past November, chronicling the making of Star Trek Voyager. And it has received rave reviews. He also works for Eagle Moss and has been a previous guest on the show, Mr. Ben Robinson. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. I, I 
really enjoyed your book. It's a fascinating look into the history of the show. Um, the first question I want to ask, Ben, Star Trek has this massive pantheon of properties over 500 hours worth of content. Uh, but what, expi- what inspired you to look specifically at Star Trek Voyager? Uh, well, very cynically, it was the 25th anniversary, uh, which makes me feel very old. Um, but we'd been thinking about doing a different kind of book anyway. I think, you know, the kind of book that we've done, I don't think exists for any of the series, really. Um, so it's something I was thinking about for all the different franchises and, and in fact, beyond Star Trek as well. Um, but Voyager seemed like the right place to start because it was the anniversary year. That's fantastic. Had you watched it when it first aired or did you, uh, was this your first time watching it? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was watching it uh, every episode as they came out. I was in England. We used to have to get uh, VHS tapes uh, FedEx (laughs) over to us from the States uh, from the production office. But we were publishing the Star Trek magazine uh, throughout, certainly throughout the last three years of Voyager's run, probably the last four, pretty much. I think we did one year after Voyager had finished before we wrapped up. That's fantastic. Now, um, one thing that I was really surprised by when reading the book is like just how many interviews you had with both the cast and crew, especially from people who like, you know, someone like Jerry Taylor, who has kind of uh, stepped back quite a bit from the public spotlight. Um, how do you how did you find the process of getting interviews for the book uh, and also, you know, finding these people who may not otherwise um, be as well known? Well, COVID was my friend in this case. Um, Everybody was at home with nothing to do. So pretty much everybody could find the time, which was great. I mean, yeah, I mean, the Voyager um, cast and crew seemed to me to maybe be a little bit closer than some of the other cast and crews. I mean, most of the Star Trek um, crew, uh, you know, are all still around and know one another. And I know quite a lot of them personally. So that, that part wasn't particularly difficult. Um, you know, I just did a book with um, Dan Curry as well, which funnily enough came out at the same time. So, you know, Dan's a, a good friend. Um, Brian Fuller's a good friend, you know. Um, so the people who I couldn't just sort of pick up the phone to straight away weren't that many. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, COVID really helped someone like Roxanne, who's like always super busy. She's got like a great directing career and is up to her eyes in work at the same for Robbie McNeil. So, uh, you know, that, that helped, but yeah, I mean, most of the people, certainly behind the scenes, people um, very helpful and um, knew a fair number of them fairly well anyway. That's fantastic. Um, you know, for me, like I grew up watching Voyager when it was on TV, but there was, because of the the nineties and the fact that there was deep space nine, there was TNG, like TNG was on every night of the week. Deep Space Nine, you might see it like, you know, once or twice a week. And then Voyager just had its primetime spot. Um, But it's been so interesting to see how it has evolved over the course of the last 20 years. I I think now it's considered the most streamed Star Trek show um, out there. And so having this sort of reexamination of the show has been very fascinating. Uh, Lisa, I'd love to get your thoughts on that, too, having worked on the show both being there for its initial success and then seeing it be revisited and reevaluated now. Like, how does that make you feel? Oh, terrific. Terrific. I mean, I was really proud of the work that we did. Um, and so the, to have people appreciating it, it's really nice. Um, and, you know, that we weren't just 
you know, a copy of the other series, but we had really original things and original characters uh, to call our own and to have people, you know, really tune in and still be watching that is really amazing. You know, we've worked together now for almost a year. You also work on Pandora and we co-wrote a script yes. together. Um, yes. But I've never had a chance to ask you just, I think because of COVID quarantine, it's, it's, uh, we, we haven't had as much water cooler talk, I guess, as we <laughs> might have had on other shows. But um, how, did, how did you first get the job on Star Trek Voyager? Uh, well, I actually started on Deep Space Nine. Um, I was a Writers Guild intern there, which was a six-week internship, which was fantastic. I got to do everything. I got to sit in on the writer's room. I got to sit in on pitch meetings and go down to the set and just learn everything that I could. And while I was there, I started pitching, uh, pitching to Deep Space Nine. And they finally bought one of my stories and I got to write it. Uh, which was an episode called Hippocratic Oath. And around that time, Voyager had just started up, uh, you know, had that sort of first half season. And I guess they were looking for a staff writer. And so Iris Stephen Bear passed my script onto Jerry Taylor and suggested me for the role. And Jerry actually called me and said, how would you like to be on staff at Voyager? I think my reaction was like, really? <laughs> uh, obviously, yes, I really wanted to. And so that's how I got started. Fantastic. And how did you find the writing process to be um, uh, different, but also the same between Deep Space Nine and Voyager? Well, it was very similar and in, in a good way. I mean, they both really had a very active writer's rooms in that all of the writers would break the stories together and then you would each go off individually and write your own drafts. I mean, some, some shows don't have a writer's room at all. And so each writer just kind of works as a freelancer in a way. But I really liked it that we all worked together so much and you kind of got invested in the series as a whole, not just your own episodes. Uh, and I really got spoiled. I mean, it was a terrific writer's room. Uh, Jerry Taylor was, you know, the, the lead, the head writer of the room, and she really created a, a very supportive atmosphere. I really, really got spoiled. Wonderful. Ben, similar question to you in the sense of... Um having both been a fan of the show when it first came out, but now seeing the reevaluation happen uh, 20 years after its, its finale. Um, what's your view on that? I think one of the things that really came out writing the book actually was how the show changed in its concept and also how TV changed. You know, you're looking at that seven year period, you know, the, the idea of what Voyager was when Brandon said people, it's a brand braga, basically, who was, took over from Jerry as the head writer, um, said, you know, that they got a lot of stick for being too much like TNG. Um, but he said, well, but TNG was hugely successful and everybody loved it, so why wouldn't you want to be like it? <laughs> um, but at the same time, it, you know, obviously, it, it is a different show. And I think that now it's out of Next Gen Shadow, it's sort of, you can see it more clearly. I think at the time, everyone's watching it thinking, oh, it's not next gen or it's not DS9. Um, and it, it wasn't as clear to us perhaps what it, what it was itself. Whereas now when you go back and look at it, you see it in a very different light. Um, and also I think it looks more prescient, um, certainly in terms of the, the sort of female cast and the diversity of the cast. It feels in some ways more like the other modern, modern tracks. Yeah, it's something I think is benefited so much by streaming as well in the sense of people are able to binge it very quickly and watch multiple episodes. And so even if you do hit an episode that is kind of so-so, you can quickly move on to the next one. You can see this larger arc take place and larger storylines take place, which is um, 
fantastic and i've i've been rewatching it lately and i'm just surprised at how well so many of the episodes have aged like it's mm -hmm. uh even some of the episodes where like imdb or the fan base says aren't great but i'm like what are you talking about this episode's wonderful <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> so utterly inventive um i think Lisa, the, you I mean, it's Easter, I'm sorry i was just gonna say i think the re one of the reasons for that is just the kind of craft and professionalism of the writing you know that they are well-written shows even if the ideas aren't all of the same quality the the execution the you know the professionalism of the writing i think really stands up well thank you oh well i think i mean i was going to ask you how much because i mean you you straddle that kind of michael pillar jerry taylor just getting into brandon taking mm -hmm. over kind of era and how the the personalities of the showrunners changed the kind of stories that they were looking for. Well, one thing I remember that Michael would always ask uh, was uh, when we would pitch a story idea, he'd say, what is the story about? Mm. Not like what happens or what's the concept, but what's it really about? You know, which character do we get to know? What do we find out about them? Or, you know, what, what philosophical, you know, um, issue is it about? And so he really came at it from that point of view. I think Jerry came at it more from like a character base, you know, who is it about? And, you know, what do we find out about them? And um, Brandon, I got the impression was a little more concept driven. I mean, he obviously paid a lot of attention to the characters, but I think that he was, he was really infatuated with, with the big, great, you know, sci-fi concepts, which I think really fueled a lot of the great episodes. Yeah, because it's, it's, sorry, <laughs> one of the things about you, I constantly interrupt people over Say okay. <laughs> it's hard not to. Yeah, I was just going to say that 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 to me is one of the things that sort of as Voyager becomes its own is that that kind of change very much. I mean, you know, I knew Michael reasonably well, and you know, there's a definite pillar formula for mm -hmm. for Star Trek, um, and I I think kind of much as I loved Michael, Voyager only really came into its own when it kind of got away a bit from from the pillar the pillar concept it, it never felt like quite such a good fit for it hmm. lisa how did you find the process in the writer's room of developing ideas in in ben's book they talk about how there's interviews with some of the writers who talk about how the initial brainstorming session was just the worst time of year because they had to break 26 story ideas right there and make them fresh and not not be repetitive over the you know, 300 plus hours of Star Trek that had come before. Um, what was your experience like with that? Well, we didn't break them all at once. I mean, it really kind of spaced out during the series. I mean, the, when I was on one staff, there were five of us. And so we kind of rotated, you know, each one of us would write, you know, one of the episodes. Um, and at the time we were doing something like 26 episodes. So we each got to write five or maybe six episodes a year. Um, and break, breaking your own episode obviously was the most fun. Um, or I, th I found it the most fun anyway. Uh, to, you know, because everybody would come in with an idea. And, you know, as in most brainstorming sessions, most ideas get shot down. You know, most of them just aren't that great. But ideally, they'll spark somebody else to think of something, which maybe sparks somebody else. And when it's your episode, you really get invested in it. And when we would all break it together, like I said, I, I find that a lot more useful than trying to break it all by myself, sitting in a room alone. I mean, to have use the use of all these other brains, you know, all these other good storytellers is really useful. And I found that a real, a really, a really good way to break stories. 
You know, Ben, one of my favorite parts of uh, the, 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 the book was that you, <laughs> there's a part in there where you actually break down the math of how much light years Voyager has traveled along the course of the show, which I just love that. And actually like bringing in so much real science into it and like plus and subtracting and all these moments. Um, Lisa, the question for you though, is like, was there a running tally in the writer's room of like where Voyager <laughs> was at in, in the course of its journey? Not really, not really. We, we, we played a little fast and loose with that because uh, you know, since we were traveling in one direction, you know, I, the fact is that you probably wouldn't run into the same alien species over and over again. But when we had an alien species that we met that we wanted to use again, then you know we we would just sort of pretend that we hadn't gone past their space yet. <laughs> and you know when we wanted to take big leaps and bounds, then we would just create some kind of spatial anomaly or something that would get us you know that much closer to Earth. Amazing. And Ben, did you actually have to go back and like watch every episode and just mark? Wow, that yeah. took a while, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had, I mean, I hope we didn't miss any. Um, yeah, we did. The other one we did as well with that is the, how many people there were on the crew. Yeah. It's like, is there a definitive number? And, and actually the funny story about that is that it's actually based on an article we did in the magazine at the time. And the Voyager was on air and Brian Fuller rang me and said, you just did a thing about how many people on the crew. How many people are on the crew? Because I've got to write it in this script. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that kind of stuff, they're always very vague, deliberately vague about, you know, it's like, yeah, roughly 150. Was it 140? Yeah. Was it 160? Ah, uh, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> you know. It's the constant well, you never know when you might need the... it to be a specific number for a particular story. And so you don't want to commit yourself until you have to. It's funny though to think back on um, Voyager in the sense of that. It's like, like, oh, it's just 150 people. Like that is not a lot of people, and yet they keep. It never really comes up in the show. It's just it's you're constantly uh, able to generate new and more stories out of that, and it's it's wonderful for that. Um, ben, I'm curious in terms of not only that, but also there's so many details in the book and so much. Um, insight into it what was the process like were you were you given access to any of the archives for the show or was this all through personal research of your own uh well the truth is i have a hefty chunk of the archives for the show myself having collected it over the years so the the cbs archives are a bit um patchy shall we mm. say okay. they've got um you know things like all the all the on-set photography, the you know when the set photographers were there, but stuff like the concept art or the visual effects models and all that stuff just never got properly archived. Mm -hmm. uh, but fortunately, because I've worked on Star Trek for uh, 23, 24 years, um, we've been able to build up our own archives. So I've actually got better archives of a lot of that stuff than than CBS do. Um, concept us were mostly pretty good; they kept hold of their stuff, or we managed to get it at the time. Uh, visual effects files we've got like a, a copy of the drive that was at the at the vendor company um and you know it's more often individuals that have stuff so again brian it's always it seems like the whole book was uh, all to do with brian uh but brian dug out like old story pitches that he still had um and scanned them for us um so that, but yeah i mean fortunately we had most of it i don't think we'd ever have been quite as ambitious if we didn't have it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful collection of, of concept art designs and on-site photography in here as well. Um, 
you know, if if uh, so many of them I'd like never seen before, especially the early designs for Voyager itself, and some of them were much more angular, a bit more like the Enterprise E. Some of them were a bit more like a like a tank. Like I, in my mind, I was very reminiscent of of even the Dominion uh, warships in the sense of like they're a bit more stocky as opposed to angular. Um, I think there was a kind of moment of panic when they were like, "Oh, we're not getting anywhere. Everybody have a go." So I think there was like a week when uh, Jim Martin and Doug Drexler and Michael Cooter and everyone's just like chucking in, like, how about this? How about that? Forget what it says in the script, you know? And then actually Rick Sternberg, who was originally tasked with designing it, his design did actually kind of come through the middle. But there was definitely a kind of like chuck everything out and start again, panic week, I think. I wonder uh, how... What, did you find anything that particularly surprised you during the research period for this for this book? Um, I don't think it was anything that massively surprised me. I think that what what happened. I mean, I, I people keep saying, "Why is this book different?" And the thing I hope makes it different is that it doesn't show anything from any one person's perspective. Mm. So, you know, I'm very aware that, you know, a TV show is not just what the actors, not just, not just the lines the actors say, because they don't know why they were written the way they were. You know, they have opinions about them, but they don't know that the story changed and someone had to throw away the original third act or, you know, what the, the impetus was for the story. And similarly, the writers don't really know how the actors felt about their characters. I mean, one thing that's that's a little strange about Star Trek in the Berman era is there wasn't that much communication between the, the writers and the actors. And I think, you know, both the writers and the actors complained about that, um, that they, they didn't get to, you know, get to feedback very much. Um, so what was interesting is being able to tell people what other people <laughs> had said. <laughs> um, you know, so like uh, I'm saying to Brandon, oh, you know, um, Kate Mulgrew and John Delancey always felt the problem with the Q stories on Voyager was that, you know, they should have gone for romance, that they, you know, there was a definite attraction between them and they should have played it. And Brandon's response was, oh, yeah, yeah, we should have done that. That would have been much better. Um, and he obviously, you know, although people hear it at conventions or in magazine articles or whatever, he'd never heard it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, and I'm trying to think of good examples of it going the other way around where you were able to say to, a, a, you know, to an actor something that the writers got. So Robbie, for example, about Tom Paris, um, you know, Michael Pillar had this thing that he, he wanted Tom Paris to be a kind of Doug Ross from ER type um, character. He wanted him to be the kind of charming, roguish bad boy who you still rooted for. And Robbie was like, oh, I wish someone had told me that. Uh, <laughs> I would have played it very differently. <laughs> so that's, I think those were the sort of, the nice surprises was putting putting people together with one another, even though they weren't, you know, physically together, but putting the ideas together. Lisa, it's your time there. Did you find that you had a lot of opportunities to interact with the actors and, and get their input from things? Uh, yeah, actually I felt pretty free because the, uh, the, they shot on the same lot, on the Paramount lot. And so it was just to, to, to walk across, you know, the Paramount lot and you could go down to the set and talk to the actors and the directors and the crew. And I really took, a, took advantage of that, uh, not only because I found it interesting, but because I did want to get, you know, get a conversation going, you know, with all this, the other creative minds behind the show. 
And so I, I did feel like I had pretty open access to the actors and the and the directors and everybody. That's interesting because Brian sort of was, was like, oh, I, I didn't dare. I had to sneak out. You had to, to go when they weren't looking. Um, really? I never got yeah, that feeling. Absolutely. But it is interesting. I mean, I was thinking about how many of the actors actually particularly complimented your scripts or talked about having had the opportunity to talk to you about them. Um, you know, Roxanne's very, you know, she always mentions Remember as, yeah. as like her big favourite episode. Oh, that's um, great. And I think Tim Russ talks as well about um, innocence, about how, mm -hmm. how much he valued being able to talk to you about it. But that's actually, I think you'd be surprised maybe at how, how little that was happening with the others. Really? Um, yeah, I, I would be surprised. Tearfully going about your business, talking to actors. <laughs> Everybody yeah. else was terrified of it. One thing I'm curious about, uh, Ben, is that uh, I was wondering how much Paramount, how much you spoke to people at Paramount for your book. So I know that uh, the studio was very protective of the Trek franchise, and I wonder what they thought of your book. Yeah, I haven't actually. I, well, I, the people who are there now, um, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. It's that you know that that is the past now, and they're not as uh, you know as fiercely protective of it as they were at the time. I mean, one of the the big thing I had a discussion with them about before we started was was about Jennifer Lean, because obviously, um, you know, Jennifer disappeared from the series and there was, been, there was no one wanted to say why at mm -hmm. the time. And I've always felt in a way it was, un I know people were trying to do it to protect her because she was having a very difficult time and no one wanted to say that she had, you know, as far as they could tell, problems with addiction. Um, and I think it's always been sort of unfair to everybody that it's like, oh, well, yeah, they just got rid of her so they could bring in sexy Jerry or, you know, or the character was all played out. Um, and I said to Jerry Taylor, and she said, no, the character wasn't played out at all. We could still have done more with the character, but, you know, because of Jennifer's issues, um, you know, we, we just couldn't write that much for her because it was difficult. Um, and that was, that was definitely something where we had to talk to CBS and say, can we just tell people what actually happened now mm -hmm. in an official publication? Because it had never been, you know, lots of people know, I mean, yeah. but it had never actually been kind of officially confirmed. And there's a kind of unfortunate fudging around it, I think. But that's also um, one of the fascinating things about the book is just how many, uh, you know, firsthand inside stories you have from the, uh, set itself and hearing things especially in um, being able to look back and see what worked what connected with people so well is very interesting and you know especially we're able to really see I think in hindsight that a lot of particularly Kess's storylines were fascinating in her own way and it's it is uh, a shame that she wasn't able to continue on um, Obviously, I hope she got the help she needed, but um, but some of some of the best uh, stories, especially from those first couple of seasons, do involve her character. So it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, Robbie was saying how because obviously he and Garrett are doing their podcast where they're rewatching all the episodes, and he was saying, you know, you forget how important Cass is to those those early seasons, um, and then obviously because Voyager gets this kind of massive reboot well it's not a massive reboot but it gets you know it changes radically once seven arrives 
and it, it has that dynamic that really drives it forward. And I think it, it becomes, that's the Voyager that most people remember, I guess, is, mm. is with Seven in it. I mean, there's very good work before that, but that, so there's a kind of, you know, Voyager is a, a story of two halves. There's, you know, before and after Seven and before and after the Borg as well. Yeah, something I found very interesting is how much you talk about the uh, evolution of special effects throughout the course of Voyager in particular, because it did come at a very a time when it could exist in two worlds. The, the pilot and the first couple of seasons were largely, they were still using a lot of practical effects, um, you know, models, and occasionally throw in a dash of CG when you could. But then by the end, you're, they were able to push things in a way that uh, Star Trek had never been able to do before. Um, Lisa, first question to you is, uh, during your time there, was there a sense of, in like, particularly when you started versus when, when you left, was there a sense of like, oh, we, we can't do that. Don't let your imagination go there because we just don't have the effects to do it. And then by the end, they're like, yeah, you could have done that. Now it's, it's you know, that sense of, of being able to expand your imagination in a way that uh, wasn't there at first. Well, I don't remember that the, the effects were really a limiter as much as the budget. Um, you know, you couldn't imagine, you know, going to five different alien locations because you'd have to build five different sets and you couldn't afford that. Um, I mean, I guess once CGI came along, that made it a little bit easier to kind of create, you know, more elaborate sets than we could actually create physically. But I don't remember being limited by, by the technology. Um, like I said, really, it was, it was more the budget and the schedule and, you know, the practical considerations that, that had to limit our imaginations at all. There's, um, I don't know if it made it, I can't remember if it made it into the book or not, but there's a story about the VFX and they would, they would sometimes be there trying to save money and it, literally every phaser blast in a space battle costs money. So they were like, oh, one fewer, one fewer, one fewer. Yep. The VFX goes, like, what do you want to just put up a sign that says bite me at the end? <laughs> but then CG, you know, CG massively changed that. Um, and suddenly, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Nobody, I asked that same question to people and no one said, oh no, we just didn't, we just, you know, we just, people said, hey, can we do this? And we said, yes. Or, you know, we realized that we could do it. I don't, it wasn't like anybody felt deprived before it was just that now now people could um i mean one of the things i always say is the voyager titles have practical models cg and cardboard in them you know where that last shot at the end was dan dan curry painted that on a piece of cardboard <laughs> the nebula that voyager flies into wow. and it, it's it's kind of like every possible technique is on the table at that point and then by the time you get to the end of the seven years, everything is CG. You know, they're yeah. still using, you know, they still do very clever things with CG that, so they still like snow, like in the, the scene in Timeless when the Voyager crashes into the snow, they actually still filmed baking soda mm -hmm. to make the snow, but they then mapped it onto a CG texture, which they would, you know, whereas in the past it would literally just have been baking soda. 
Well, it's so interesting to look at timeless versus uh, generations, which, you know, generations also had a crashing of the enterprise, but that was all done practically, even down just to the models of the trees and things. And, and then in, in timeless, you're able to, I think they were able to exceed the, the cinematic budget in their uh, crash of Voyager there because of what you're talking about is that they had a bit more technology at their disposal. And it's, it's so fascinating to look back on and see just how far we came in a very short period of time. It was like they almost reinvented the wheel throughout the 90s. UPM and the creators of Star Trek present a major television event. Now it's time to go home. The 100th episode of Voyager. Yes! Split screen is collapsed. Losing life support. Why won't it work? Trust us, the first 99 episodes were but a prelude for what's next. All hands, wait for... LeVar Burton guest stars on Voyager. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that did feed back into the storytelling because Brandon, Brandon said to me that he and Joe, when Brandon really sort of stepped up and it was, you know, he was having more and more influence over the show, which would have been in the last year you were there, at least mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they, they said, well, what can we do that's different? And the, the answer they came up with was, we can be more cinematic. We can be the most cinematic uh, Star Trek there's ever been and I, I guess that wouldn't have been possible because you wouldn't have been able to do those kind of cinematic effects which suddenly became available so it does feed back but not in a kind of conscious kind of like oh okay now I can do this it was more yeah let's let's go for it because we can yeah we did we didn't have stories that we set aside saying oh when the technology gets here we can do that story I mean we would just find a different way to tell it you know again if if we had to go to, you know, a really elaborate alien planet, we would just go to a slightly simpler alien planet instead and tell the same story. Two more left. <laughs> yes. Lisa, do you have a do you have a specific example of that? Like I'm always fascinated by uh, stories of like what what almost was, like what might have been in terms of uh, Star Trek or, you know, George Lucas always talks about his plans and desires for the films that never came about because of X, Y, and Z. And uh, do you have any memories of those? Well, not, not, not a specific episodes, but just a, of a general feeling of, you know, again, running up against budget, particularly with locations, because we could build, um, you know, we had our standing sets, obviously, the ship, and then we could build basically two new sets for each episode. And then we also had our caves, which we used a lot. You know, we went to the cave planet a lot, um, but we you know, we had to sort of limit our locations. And so there were some episodes that really would have benefited from being able to go from place to place to place. Um, I mean, actually the first episode I wrote was called Resistance. Um, and it had Jane May going down to a planet and in, there was a marketplace and then there was a, a particular alien that she hooked up with. Um, they went to his home and they also went to a, a prison, which was on our cave sets, basically dressed up. And it would have been nice to be able to, to make that prison a little more high tech, you know, to actually build the sets rather than having to just, you know, put cages basically in, in caves. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one instance I remember, but that we ran up against that a lot. Yeah. It was definitely interesting to see all the concept art that was included in the book and to see just how much scope there was in these artists' minds in terms of like what could have been. And so often it's translated magnificently on the screen and what they were able to achieve on, uh, on a TV show budget, especially a TV show that was not only, uh, uh, you know, limited in terms of 
by today's standards of what they could do, but also just like there's 26 episodes coming out every year. I mean, yeah. I don't even know what that broke down to per episode budget, but I can't imagine it was uh, Game of Thrones level budgets. But. Not so much. No, it's all surprisingly modest. You know, I mean, particularly you get a lot of bang for your buck on, on screen for the time, but certainly, you know, the, the concept of, of how ambitious TV could be was very different back then, I think. There was one instance uh, a few years ago where I attended a Q&A with uh, Ron Moore, and he was mostly there to talk about Battlestar Galactica, but I had a chance to ask him about like what was that one episode, that one thing that he'd always wanted to include in one of his shows that he was just never able to make work. And he said that back in TNG, they had uh, continually tried to break an episode that was told in reverse like we began with the final episode or the final moments final minutes and then they would work backwards from there and they could just never figure out how to make it work until like years later he saw the episode of Seinfeld that did that and he was like oh right that's how you do it uh Lisa do you have any memories of of that type of thing happening on Voyager and also Ben in your research did you come across any of those story pitches where you were just like man they kept coming back to this idea time and time again but they were just never able to get it in there uh, the one thing that I that I know that we talked about some was you know wanting to see more of the Borg, um, you know certainly when Seven came along, um, and that was something that you know people kept pitching us constantly was Borg stories, um, and the Borg are frankly kind of expensive, and and also it's something that you don't want to go back to too often, because sort of you know the, the more mysterious they are the better in, in my opinion you know that. That you don't want to get you don't want to make them too humanized in a way even more than than we already had with seven and so i think that was that was floating around a lot that we we didn't do as many stories as we could have with that it's surprising when you go back and look at it, how few borg stories there are actually you have yeah. this back, i guess because there are a lot of seven stories but yeah. there aren't borg you know borg drones borg collective stories and i for me, I think that the, 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 the genius of Seven really was it was a locked way of doing the Borg and that suddenly they have a point of view, uh, which I guess had started in First Contact. But, you know, you've actually got a, a character in the same way that Worf had done in Next Gen or that Spock had done in, you know, in the original series. It suddenly allows you to look at this culture that has a very, very different view of the world. But to, to go back to your question about whether anything, I mean, I, I asked Brandon, so what were the, you know, were there any great stories you didn't get to? And he said, oh, God, no. Everything we could think of went up on screen. He said there was nothing left. And, you know, 26 episodes a year, he's like, no, every idea we ever had got on screen, we used it, every halfway decent one anyway. That's fair. That's very fair. That's, uh, that's understandable. I was amazed too to to see some of the pictures in here um, from the behind the scenes shoot from the pilots. And there's a lot of stories out there about how the uh, certain executive in particular wanted Captain Janeway's hair to be very specific in the show. And so it had been filmed once all the way through with, with all of her scenes shot with one haircut. And then they went back and did it again because the executive said this hair needs to be different and it just it boggles my mind today that that happened but at the time it was a thing but it was so fascinating to see some of the pictures in there because i don't think they've ever been released before uh, i think one or two of them have been uh, okay. i mean they were sort of held back because her hair's wrong um 
I thought I mean, it looked Kate, great. I was like, this is awesome. Why, why would they do yeah, I mean, Kate was, I mean, she said you can't, you know, it now really difficult to understand how nervous people were about having a female captain. And that it, you know, there was a massive anxiety. And she said she literally at the end of the first season, I mean, the first season was like went by in a blur. But at the end of the first season, she literally said, right, take the corset, take the Italian shoes, just, you know, let me just be, let me just, let me do it. Just, you can't all be standing over me anxiously trying to do this or that. I mean, her hair in the first season is quite ludicrous. There's a time when she's got like Rapunzel hair in some episodes. It's like, how on earth do you <laughs> walk with that much hair? Um, yeah, but it, it is a, I think that is a sign of it being from a, a different era, you know, where this was the first time anyone had, had, had put a woman in what, uh, to that point, had been seen to be such a male role. Um, and the success of it, you know, the fact that now we don't think anything of it, um, captains are just as likely to be female in the Star Trek universe as they are men. In fact, slightly more likely, I would say. Um, and I think that, you know, that's because they pulled it off. But at the time, oh, people were nervous, for sure. Well, it's interesting, too, to think about how I feel like it's starting to get the recognition it deserves today for which is what you're talking about. But at the time, maybe, I mean, just be like maybe it was just because of where I was in my life, but like it didn't occur to me. Like it was just like here's a new Star Trek show, and here's a captain on it. And I think even uh, the recent um, Deep Space Nine doc, uh, what we left behind, brings it up in the sense of like even today, you know, uh, critical commentators don't give Deep Space Nine credit for having a, a black male lead who is also a family man in their show. They don't count it as being like as progressive as it was. And um, but I do think part of it is that it it's just presented as like, here's a captain, here's Janeway. And the fact that she's a woman is kind of down on the list of like character attributes. Right. And, and I mean that in some ways a, a positive way, because it's like oh, yeah. the character uh, is defined first by her career and what she does. And like the fact that she's a woman is, is like whatever, you know, it's uh, Lisa, I'm curious, like thoughts on that. Well, we certainly wanted to portray, you know, an ideal, you know, the ideal future in which really nobody cared, you know, and yeah. that it wasn't new and different in the Star Trek universe, you know, and that they had had, you know, male and female captains and, you know, probably trans and bi and everybody, you know, everything you could think of in a captain had already been. And so it really just did not make any difference. And so we didn't have people commenting on it. We didn't have anybody, you know, being surprised to see a female captain, anything like that because at the time really it didn't make any difference. But it's interesting because Jerry Taylor talks about one of the reasons she wanted to create Janeway was because Patrick had been such a, a classically male captain that, you know, that he is this kind of closed, unemotional, um, distant father figure. You know, I mean, when I was talking to him, we, we came up with the idea that he was kind of like an Old Testament prophet, you know, who would kind of, you know, he was there. And, and Brandon said, you know, when you had a Picard scene, it was like, it's a Picard scene. Here comes the Picard scene. Whereas Janeway, you know, Jerry said, it's like at the time, she felt that it was more female 
to be approachable, to be, uh, you know, to joke about a bit with the crew, to be, to go and play pool with them, you know, to hustle them in the pool room. Um, and that they actually very much wanted to, to introduce that element to the show. And that at the time she felt that that was more female, but that interestingly now it sort of, we know we've, in, we've evolved to the point where it doesn't seem quite so much that way. Our sensors show that you are trespassing on our vessel. As I've already informed you, we're attempting to retrieve the console that caused this explosion. If you attempt to remove anything from our ship, it will be considered an act of war. You know, I'm really easy to get along with most of the time. But I don't like bullies, and I don't like threats, and I don't like you, Color. You can try and stop us from getting to the truth, but I promise you, if you do, I will respond with all the unique technologies at my command. Janeway out. Well, it's interesting to see all the subtle differences that the captains had at the time. I mean, even as, oh, you say that Picard was a very classical male figure, he was, but he was very much different than Kirk, who had come before. You know, these are yeah. two very distinct characters. And like Janeway, especially as I'm, I'm rewatching it now, I'm noticing just how many little things, which I wonder if they were even scripted. At least I'd ask that to you. But like the little moments where uh, Janeway just just kind of kind of is a little softer, but can still be very firm at times. But like mm. um, just a little bit more uh, in some ways approachable, a little bit more like like Picard was very aloof and you just never I, you know, I would love to grab a, you know, a cup of tea with him one day, but like, I don't imagine we would be shooting pool together because <laughs> those are the, you know, and, and so I just, I'm curious, like how much awareness was it for, uh, for you, Lisa, in the, in the, and the writer's room, like to distinguish Janeway from other captains? Well, we obviously wanted to make her distinct, you know, we didn't want her to just be a copy of anybody. And the fact is that Kate had so much natural authority that we didn't have to, we didn't have to hammer it too hard. We didn't have to keep reinforcing, oh, she's in charge, she's in charge, because she was just so clearly in charge. And that really gave us flexibility to show maybe more vulnerable moments or more, you know, sort of open moments with her and the crew, because it did it didn't diminish her standing at all. It didn't make it, it didn't make her less of a captain, because as soon as she stood on that bridge, she was in charge. And so I think that, that her performance really gave us a lot more flexibility. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that really came through to me doing all the interviews for the book is that feedback loop between the writers and the actors. Mm -hmm. the, you know, again, Jerry Taylor said to me, you know, the, the, at that time when you created a show, you created the characters to have potential and that the writers didn't necessarily know what that potential was going to be. And that the, the and it, you know, Ethan Johnny Phillips said, you know, I realized they cast you for you. Um, you know, it's a concept, it's a I think it's a different thing. I mean, you know, if you look back to all that kind of 70s TV, it was all cast for for the actor. You know, Starsky and Hutch, I mean, it, you know, that the whole point of that, or Kojak, you know, those shows are, are nothing if they've got different different actors in them, or they're radically different. And that, um, that I think was still the the idea behind 
casting when they created Voyager, you know, and they didn't have a three season arc, like apparently everybody, everybody tells me you have to have when you preach to the network now, you know. Um, so they were very much, you know, my understanding, Lisa, you can tell us that, you know, they were looking to the actors to come and put a spin on, on what they were doing that then informed how they would write something going forward. I mean, they didn't, there was no improv on the set. I mean, you know, actors didn't, didn't change a word. Nope. But, but they did give it a twist. You know, Kate would play it with a bit more humour perhaps than it had originally been written. Um, and, you know, one of the really clever things she said to me was that how she thought Janeway's humour was different with each of the characters. That, you know, she would, it was very respectful with Chakotay and quite combative with Tom Paris. And, you know, she could have some fun with him, you know. And all of that is a choice that the actor is making mm -hmm. that then the writers see. And as they're writing the next one, it gets written into the next script and it becomes more and more so. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we definitely had that feedback loop. I mean, certainly once you see, you know, several episodes and once you see what the actors bring to it, you can, you can hear those voices in your head as you're writing it, you know, and you can hear how the actor is probably going to do it. And it absolutely affects that, that character going forward. It's really, a it's really a collaboration. It was so fascinating, specifically um, spelled out in the book, how, how much the actors, uh, the, the chemistry and the connections that actors formed with each other would in turn affect the storylines later on. Um, you know, like the for a while there was the the Janeway Chakotay romance, which was almost a thing, almost a thing, and then it just kind of got pulled back from there, and it just started because of these two actors. And of course, the Doctor and Seven, I think, was very much uh, uh, because they found these actors to be working so well together, and even just down to the Doctor's remark, amazing and wonderful personality, just comes from from him, uh, you know, ad libbing a line in in, in the pilot, and it was uh, wonderful. Um, uh, Lisa, how did you find it to to see these characters grow and evolve over time, uh, especially in, in your own writing for them? Well, it's very gratifying. I mean, if because what, I mean, your your goal in every script is to show something different about the character, to, to learn more about them, or to have them change a little bit. Uh, obviously, you know, in Star Trek, we couldn't have them change too drastically, but uh, to, to have just to meet a different aspect of that character. And so it wasn't so much that the character would change as our perception of them would change, I think, and sort of be revealed. And that was something that the actors definitely helped with. Yeah, that's another thing I think about the, the change in the nature of television is, you know, you're still at a time when I, I think I saw once that the network considered a hardcore fan to be someone who saw 40% of the shows. You know, and there was no opportunity to go back and catch up with it on a streaming service or whatever. Um, so they were very, you know, very nervous about if the character seemed different when you turned on. Mm -hmm. Because maybe you hadn't seen the last five episodes or it was going to be a syndication and you'd only see it on Wednesdays. And, you know, if, if things had changed in the four episodes in between, then you'd be confused. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know on DS9, Ira was just like, well, forget that. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I don't care. I'm doing what I'm doing because that's what Ira's like. Um, but on Voyager, there was very much, a, a, you know, it was that, that balance of what you were saying about revelation without change, somehow deepening something 
that was kind of always there. Yeah, which I think is is the way it, the way it is in, in real life. I think you know when you're when you're working with somebody, you know, you at first you just know them on a very professional kind of level, but then maybe as time goes by, and especially you know with Voyager when they're all living on the same starship at the same time and they're not coming and going, you know, that they they kind of learn about each other the same way that the audience is learning about them. Yeah, it's a wonderful family dynamic. And I think you, what you see over the course of every Star Trek show um, is is by the end of it, even if it's conscious or not, these are very much a family dynamic forming here because mm-hmm. these are people they see every day and that's that's it. And it's it's um, wonderful. That. It was really great too to see in the book. Like I just, I, I guess it had, just to see how much dedication there was from the actors into their roles here. I'm thinking specifically of like Ethan Phillips or the people that had to sit in a makeup chair for hours and hours and hours on end just to come to set and be told and sit around for more hours and hours on end waiting for their roles to come up and then to be told, oh, we're not going to get to that scene today. You have to go back home. And I was yeah, like, well, oh my God. I said that one of my questions to everyone was like, what was the best day? What was the worst day? And Roxanne, that was Roxanne's worst day. It's like, you've come in, you've got to make up, you've sat there the whole day, and then they go, oh, we don't need you. And you're like, oh. um, So, yeah, I mean, that that was tough. I mean, Johnny said that, you know, funny enough, the makeup never really bothered him. Mm-hmm. Um, he said you'd see other people come in, um, and, and it would bother them. Um, Roxanne was interesting. Roxanne said that she went through all these makeup tests, and she was like, oh, no, don't make me hideous. Don't make me hideous. So when they gave her, like, the big Klingon teeth, she'd, like, deliberately fluff her dialogue. She'd make herself incomprehensible so that uh, they couldn't give her those teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, everybody. And then the other thing I think really came through to me is just, you know, everyone's working hard, but there's a degree of tedium for the actors in, in like, here we are on the bridge again, and this scene has to be covered from four angles. Um, and, you know, here I am giving my line. And um, Garrett said that they had a, a particular way of going around the bridge. It meant that his shot was always last. So he said as the day would go on, they'd go, oh, well, um, Garrett, um, Kate's, Kate's done now. She, you know, do you mind if we let her go? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's like, yeah. And then, oh, Robert's done now. Do you mind if we let him go? And he said, and by the end, it would just be him and Cosmo Genovese, who was the ancient uh, script coordinator. And he's saying, and it's really tough to, to get your performance to the same level when, A, you've done it six times already. And it's not that different to the dialogue you had last week either. Um, and you don't have the other actors to play off. So, you know, I, I think that, and that's what led to a lot of the, the goofing off, um, you know, which is very apparent. There was a lot of. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful too, to, um, to see how, particularly like to, to, I, to be reminded of just how much dedication and artistry there was put into, into the prosthetic process. And I think, you know, you, you pointed out in the book how, how many, how much, uh, these these makeup effects were deserving of awards at the time and it occurred to me when reading it i was like yes they absolutely were but also in the 90s there was just such a flood of these sort of prosthetic 
character effects going on. Not only do you have Voyager, Deep Space Nine, TNG going on, but you also have things like Buffy, Angel, Farscape, Babylon 5, um, all of these shows that had very good work going on. And now today I thought about it, I'm like, there's really none out there. You got a little bit in Discovery or Picard, but even there they try to focus more on human-oriented characters. And it was so interesting to think back on those times and kind of laments about the the fact that it's not there anymore. Mike Westmore was a genius. I mean, yeah. he really, and and the loveliest man you will ever talk to, um, which is, you know, doubly impressive. I mean, I think one of the things is that when you've had so many hours of funny makeup, funny forehead alien makeups, it, it becomes, I think, it just becomes a little dated. It becomes, sure. you know, it's of that era. Um, and people kind of, you know, it's a fashion, I guess. I'm sure it will come back at some point. Um, I think also, you know, there's been a, it'd be interesting to see what happens with Strange New Worlds when, you know, they are very much going down the episodic format and, you know, Planet of the Week, Alien of the Week stuff. Um, but, you know, something like Galactica, which, you know, no aliens, um, I think, and was so good and so influential, I think kind of pulls the, uh, pulls the whole medium into a different place. Very true. Uh, ben, on, on a larger level, like what is the, uh, what would you say is, is the favorite part of the book? Like what was the, the thing that brought you the most joy from doing it? Uh, it was that thing of putting everything together. It's that, it, it's when you're talking about, I mean, I, you know, whenever you do something like this, lots of stuff has been written about every bit of Star Trek. So you're looking at it and thinking, well, how can we do that and make it different? You know, how can we... Um, and to some level, you just kind of think of different questions to ask the actors or the writers or whatever that people haven't asked before. But, uh, you know, I've had experience of that before. And, you you know, I had a great moment with George Takei where I was like, finally found a question he hadn't been asked before. And he just went, you know, Ben, I don't remember. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, it, it, so what was really satisfying was being able to, to do that thing of saying, okay, uh, you know, Brandon said this, you know, Brandon, did you know Kate said this? Um, you know, Robert, they told me that you're the one that couldn't remember your lines. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and you, you start to get, and I, I, I hope that's what the book does, is give you a sense of the, of the family, of all of these people together, rather than just everybody talking in isolation, which, is, which I think is what's still there to be done. You know, that sense of, you know, the, the idea for the book sort of conceptually started off as like, what would be the best possible convention? Could you do that? in book form. And then I thought about what the people really want at a convention. And part of that is to get to know the people. Uh, part of it is funny stories. And I hope there are quite a few funny stories in the book, which, you know, that not many books have funny stories in. There should be more books with funny stories. Um, and then that sense of like, well, actually there are all these different people doing something at the same time, trying to contribute to this. So that was, that was what we set out to do. And I think the you know, satisfying thing is I kind of think we, I think we pulled it off. I hope we pulled it off. Wonderful. Um, before we wrap up here, I, I have two questions left for you. And Lisa, if you have any questions yourself, please jump in. Um, but firstly, 
I'm always fascinated to know, and you might have more insight into this than anyone, um, at least anyone I'm talking to right now, but, uh, uh, is that uh, Star Trek, Voyager, Blu-ray transfer, is there any hope of it ever happening? Yes or no? Uh, the basic situation is it's incredibly expensive. TNG yeah. didn't make enough money on that Blu-ray release for them to be confident that another show that was maybe 70% as popular would make enough money to make it worth doing. That said, if you are a streaming service trying to find a way of reinvigorating Star Trek and making it something, you know, come and watch this, come and watch it again, um, that is the best hope, is that, you know, what will be Paramount Plus or somebody like, you know, somebody else, I'm not presuming it will be Paramount Plus because of the way streaming is working now, decides that that is the thing that would make people come and watch it again. But, you know, I and the, the Voyager, the DS9 doc guys are doing Voyager doc at the moment, so some of it, they will, um, <laughs> some of it, they will re-digitize in, in HD. But that's that's kind of where it is at the moment, as far as I understand. Yeah, I think the best example that I ever had was uh, actually watching the premiere of the Deep Space Nine doc uh, in a theater in LA. And at that time, they hadn't done the HD transfer. So you're seeing just like the standard definition just broadcast onto this huge screen. And I was like, oh, my God, that looks terrible. And it's not a not a rag on anyone's uh, work at the time or anything, but it's just like we're so used now to, to HD or 4K even. And then just to jump back to 480p, I was like, ugh, it's shocking <laughs> but that but, uh, i mean that the way they did the effects that whole thing of transferring everything over to video so you could edit it on video and you could do the effects digitally is is what made star trek possible what made yeah. next gen you know without that it, it would never have been possible and they would never have had any effects at all that's a great point i mean they they did what they had to do to make it work at the time and it's um you know, it made it more cost effective for them to to put the, out the content that they could. And um, it is a shame that our technology has gone to the place now where we there's this weird sort of pocket of shows from the 90s and, and late 80s that just it makes it difficult to upgrade to the next to the next medium. But um, yeah. it's uh, anyway, it's great, though, that it's still being enjoyed and it's it's uh, being consumed by a new generation of people. Um, I guess both Lisa and, and Ben, like what's how do you how do you see that how do you see like voyager continuing to age and entering not only into a, a new generation but a, even a third generation now at this point well that does make me feel old i'm so sorry <laughs> i didn't mean it like that <laughs> it's been, uh uh in the sense of like uh you know so many people are able to consume it now and in see it in a very positive way and i think in a lot of ways it's being loved more now than it has ever been and that's such a wonderful thing for it. Well, I think that it is uh, hopefully timeless um, because we definitely made an effort not to, not to make it dated. You know, we certainly obviously didn't contain any contemporary references, you know, it was in its own universe. Um, and hopefully other than, you know, maybe the special effects, like we were saying, you know, the, the lack of CG in the early episodes, you know, other than that, I, don't, I really don't think it's very dated. I think that it's going to be rediscovered and, and re-enjoyed again and again for that reason. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what's happening now, actually. I think, you know, there are a lot of people discovering it on Netflix or on whatever streaming service it is in the country they're in. And I think, it, it, you know, at the time, 
I think everybody everybody been so in love with next gen, and then there was a lot of you know there were a lot of brickbats thrown at DS9 and Voyager for not being next gen, and and if you can look at it now just in its own terms, I think it stands up really really well, um, and I think it's stronger than people perhaps realised at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a kind of thing in the zeitgeist I think that you know people are just like well I've been watching Star Trek for ten years I'm kind of had enough or I'm not as excited as I was when I when I you know I'm not as excited as when I was when I was young <laughs> you know none of us are about anything yeah um, so you know it's I think it it really benefits from that distance um, and and it it is really good in itself I mean obviously there's the odd episode that maybe people don't want to rewatch um, but most of them uh, you know really really do stand up. Um, and I think it also has these amazing, you know, roots, a couple in the, in the Doctor and Seven. It's the only Star Trek show that has two massively high concept and massively popular characters. You know, even the original series doesn't have that. Um, you know, maybe argue next gen with Data and Worf, but I mean, Worf's not in the same, you know, high concept car- category as, um, as the Doctor or Seven. And and that that's quite extraordinary. And and they both, you know, they both generate stories like nobody's business. Um, and and there's something compelling about almost every story that is built around them in particular. And you know, it's, as Brandon said, nothing ever writes itself, but uh, <laughs> some things are easier to write than others. Well, I think that one of the great things about the Doctor and Seven both is that they weren't standard Starfleet characters. And so they, they weren't kind of hampered by the fact that they had to be essentially perfect and they had to be nice all the time. I mean, neither of them had to be nice all the time. And so they weren't, you know, they got to say the rude things that other people were thinking, but couldn't say. And so that made them a lot more fun to write for. Doctor, have you been messing around with your program? I would hardly call my effort to improve my performance as ship's physician messing around. What exactly have you done to yourself? I've taken character traits from holodeck recreations of the most accomplished figures in history. Scientists, poets, philosophers, saints. And incorporated them into your program? Precisely. There. That should compensate for the lack of enzyme in your system. You should be fine. That's more than I can say for you. How so? You can't just casually add behavioral subroutines into your program. There's nothing casual about it. I've put a great deal of research into this project. And, and what I realized talking to people was that they both have in common with Spock this sense of their own superiority. Mm. <laughs> that, you know, they are both absolutely convinced that they, I mean, it's interesting, Bob, Bob Picardo said about the Doctor that it was, what he loved about it was the combination of vanity and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, that on the one hand, yes, he is a genius, but he also is a, a complete idiot in certain spheres of his life. Um, and, and talking to Jerry about Seven or talking to Brandon about Seven, you know, there are all sorts of interesting ways of looking at her as a character, uh, all of which generate story and that, but certainly her kind of Borg, sense of Borg superiority uh, is, is essential to her. Mm-hmm. Store that. Uh, Lisa, I have to tell you, like one of my big regrets in life um, 
is as a Star Trek fan, especially is that I never got to uh, the Star Trek Las Vegas experience with the, the Borg one, which you had, oh, which yeah. you had written the script for. And it just, it kills me. Like I got to the <laughs> first one with the Klingon experience, mm-hmm. um, but I never made it back for the Borg one. And it just, it just eats me up inside. But I didn't even realize until um, you did the uh, early interview with uh, the Trek experts about that was um, it came out a number of years after Voyager had concluded. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't like in my mind, it was like, oh, it must have come out like around the time of first contact around the time that Voyager came into contact. But no, they actually came back and did a, a new re- new some new footage and new recordings for the for the mm-hmm. project. Um, ben, I'm curious if in your research, if you would come across any attempts or any pitches or any ideas that were floating around to continue Voyager on beyond the seven year conclusion. Uh, well, obviously, there's a whole series of novels. Um, of course, of course. I mean, I think the one of the challenges was I think most of the writing staff by the end of it kind of felt they were done um, yeah. for various reasons. Um, some of that was seven years of 26 episodes a year, and you know they were like, "Okay, time to let's reinvent things. Let's what can we do that changes things that makes it a bit different?" What I thought was really interesting is how much conversation there was about maybe not bringing Voyager home in the final episode. You know, oh, there was yeah. a, you know, I mean, ultimately, Brandon said, no, it, you know, it had to be. That was the whole point of the show. It You know, it's like you do The Fugitive and you find the one-armed man in, you know, at the beginning of the season and it's like no one wants to watch anymore. Um, but, you know, there was a lot, certainly Ken said that, that, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, should we see what happens to these characters once they get home? You know, because there are a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, you know, Chakotay and Balana technically need to be going to prison. Um, you know, I mean, obviously you assume that's not what happens. Um, but they, and he said the interesting thing about that is he said, you know, although we decided against it, he said he thought it kind of filtered into the, the thinking behind the final episode because you did see what happened to the characters after they'd been home for a while. It was just in an alternate universe where it had gone badly wrong. Doc! Mr. Paris, Voyager's pilot, medic, and occasional thorn in my side. (laughs) Where have you been hiding yourself? I've been busy. New hollow novel? I'll make sure to get your input before I send it off to my publisher. (laughs) Aren't you going to introduce me to your date? Mr. Paris, meet Lana. My blushing bride. You're married? Tomorrow is our two-week anniversary. <laughs> well, congratulations. My invitation must have gotten lost in subspace. Oh, you should be flattered. We took a page from your book and eloped. Joe is a real flair for romantic gestures. Joe? I, I decided I couldn't get married without a name. It took you 33 years to come up with Joe? Um, and also, I guess now, I think, you know, the chances of some of those characters... Uh, turning up in the Star Trek universe and us finding out what happened to them afterwards is increasing. Probably well, by true. I mean, Of course, Seven Vine is in Picard, but also um, yeah. mm-hmm. Kate Mulgrew was announced to be in the animated uh, Prodigy yeah. series in some form. I think it's maybe some hologram-esque type thing. I'm yeah. not sure, but uh, anyway. There's that. <laughs> it's still quite under wraps what they're doing yes, with that. I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting new territory for Star Trek. A genuinely kind of 14, 
14 year old version of Star Trek. Uh, it'd be very interesting to see where they, where they go with that, whether they pull it off. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think the biggest compliment that the show can get is that the characters live on and that we're here now celebrating this book release. That's, uh, uh, you know, celebrating the entire run of the show, which is a fantastic. And it really is a fantastic book. I, I have Thank to you. say that um, it's out now through Eagle Moss and is Star Trek Voyager a celebration. Um, final question I have to ask for both of you. Uh, I'd put out the call to my other Star Trek fans. I've said, hey, I'm interviewing this guy. He's great. And Lisa Klink's going to be on. It's great. Do you have any questions for them? And they had one question in particular that everyone said you have to ask about. Hey. Was Tuvix murdered? Yes or no? And should Janeway be arrested for this crime? <laughs> that is the whole point of a Michael Pillar Star Trek episode is that you get to the end and you don't know. You know, I mean, that's what Michael always wanted from Star Trek was to, to because you couldn't have the conflict come from the characters, it had to come from a moral dilemma. Um, and Michael, you know, that that story started off, I mean, Lisa, I don't know, you must have been in the break sessions for, you know, it apparently started off as a, a comedy. It was like not really working. And then I think Brandon and Michael kind of had some meeting or whatever and just said, no, it's a tragedy. Um, you know, let's, let's make it that really difficult moral question. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is. And that's why it's a really great episode. You know, I mean, as Brian said, it's like that episode had no right to be great, but it is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but, that's, that, but that, that to me is, that's, that's classic Michael Pillar. Yeah. Just done it. yeah, I would agree with that. It's amazing. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly we want, we want to torture our characters as much as possible. I mean, you want to put them in the most difficult possible situation and force them to make the most heart-wrenching choices that you possibly can. And I think that that was, that was a good example of that. And, uh, you know, Janeway was really in the hot seat. I'll give you another Michael Pellet thing. So I said to him, I asked Michael about killing Kalar in season three of TNG because Hans and Ricky never forgave him for it. The, the guys who for the character. And he said, oh, well, but you can't, um, can't kill our characters. You can't change them. So you have to hurt them. Um, yeah. And I thought that was, you know, pretty insightful as a, as a piece of writing advice. That's very true. That's very true. Um, it's amazing to me that this argument is still, it's even more heated now than ever before. <laughs> I think it's, it's just. It was yes, but maybe that was the right thing. I know. I was so surprised when I heard about it the first time. I was like, oh, we're, this is an argument. This is things people are, okay, cool, cool. I mean, I'm, I'm off. I'm not but what against do you think? it. But... I mean, you know, it's not, I mean, do you know the answer? I don't. I, I continually point out to people that the 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 type of story of like people getting split in two and then needing to be reformed into their into their own person it's not you know it's been done many times and we don't ever think that like well you know spock was killed the evil version of kirk or whatever or like things like that and so to me it just it unfolded it was very poignant and it was a very well done episode but it's like it, it ended kind of the way that it needed to and to hear people say like, well, no, Tuvix was an actual sentient being and, and you know, he was killed because and I, it made me think about things in a way that I hadn't necessarily done before, which is Star Trek, I think, at its best. And and it's definitely um, probably why the argument is still so present today as it ever is before, because like that is it's not as clear cut as here's evil version of someone and 
that needs to be taken out because that's evil. You know, it's like here Tuvix was a very uh, uh, conscious and very, uh, uh, you know, sentient person who maybe didn't deserve to die. And so it is, it's, it's a odd conundrum, you know, and it's, I love it. It's fantastic. So much yeah. of that is on the casting as well, because it's a great piece of casting. I can't remember the actor's name, but you know, this is someone who you believe could become a series regular. You know, he was good yeah. enough. You could have just gone, okay. I mean, poor Tim Russ and, and Johnny Phillips were like, oh yeah. my God, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing you realize about actors is they're reading the script going, oh my God, I'm dead. Oh no. <laughs> Particularly like the D Space Nine, all the guest cast are like, oh no, they've killed me. That's it. End of end of the <laughs> you know, that's the end of my paycheck. Um, but residuals live on. Yeah, but, it's true. <laughs> but more than ever. But it's so true in terms of Deep Space Nine, but also Voyager, and that because serialization became a thing, you would have recurring guest casts and you know, the wonderful extras they would bring in and also uh, uh day players, you know, to and they would come back and they would recur and they would grow and become more and um yeah, it must have been very. It's 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 must have been stressful for them to think about those sort of things. But <laughs> anyway, uh, Ben, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But um, what's on the agenda for you next? What are you working on right now? What's uh, what's your quarantine looking like? Oh, busy, um, very very busy. We just launched a, a massive build up model of the Enterprise D, uh, Fantastic. which we, we put out just before Christmas and. Uh, that starts shipping next month. So we'll be going back and doing a bit more stuff to, to support that. Um, we're doing the expanse. We're doing Stargate. Um, got a ton of book stuff, which I'm not quite on the point of announcing, but the Voyager celebration went down pretty well. So you can imagine that we might do another Star Trek show, a celebration. Um, which I think what else, um, having lots of conversations with people. There's so much sci-fi uh, in the air that, you know, having conversations with people about things, if they work out, then they'll work out for us. Um, got some Marvel product to announce. Um, yeah, pretty pretty busy. I've, I've probably talked about 10% of the things I need to be doing, um, which, is, which is the problem with my life. I do only ever think about 10% of the things I should be doing. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. And uh, Lisa, how about you? What's 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 new in your life? Uh, well, I'm actually working on a novel. Nice. Um, yes, I've, I've written a couple before, but this is uh, this is probably going to be the, the the biggest one uh, that I've written on my own without being part of another series. Well, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, from there, I guess, suppose we will wrap things up. Ben, thank you so much for being here. And Lisa as well. This has been a fantastic chat. Um, listeners out there, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us at Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, ben, are you on, on the socials? Can people connect with you? I'm on Twitter um, erratically. Um, so if you look, I'm Ben C.S. Robinson on Twitter. And then the company, we have a you know, herocollector.com website um a newsletter all sorts of stuff so yeah if you want to look for us there you will find us we are easy to find fantastic and lisa for you yes i'm on uh, facebook and twitter um not really on instagram i mean i have an account but i don't post there very often so facebook and twitter is probably the best place to find me fantastic 
And the book again is Star Trek Voyager, a celebration. It's available right now, anywhere that you pick up books. Um, it's a fantastic read, uh, also available uh, digitally and strongly recommend that you pick it up. Um, so thank you again for being here today. And if uh, you, I already said where you can find us on social, so never mind. But <laughs> wanted to thank our, uh, definitely want to thank our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, as well as producer Natalie Miscali, and our executive producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. So until next time, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.